0: Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach.
1: And I'm Seth.
0: And we're the Classic Gaming Brothers.
1: That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers.
0: We are. We are. Yes. Yes. How are you, Seth?
1: All right. How are you? Good. Good. Welcome to the 118th episode. That's a number. It comes after hundred. But it's before 120.
0: Yeah, we're getting close to 120, which means we will be close to 150. That's
1: how numbers work. (laughs) That's how numbers work. They do go up. They go either forward or backwards. Yeah, But time is linear, so if you count forward, you can't go backwards, I guess. I mean, you could listen to our catalog starting with this episode and then working your way back, but I feel like that would be tantamount to starting with dessert and moving your way to deciding what restaurant to go to.
0: Yeah, yeah I guess so.
1: Deciding what restaurant to go to can be a painful process, and that's what our beginning episodes are like.
0: We, we are like a painful process.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. We are also like a painful process.
0: Anyway, uh, Seth, what have you been playing?
1: Uh, Recently, I've been playing The Long Dark, a game by Hinterland Studio Incorporated. It's a uh, exploration survival story where you have to think for yourself. So, you know, obviously, I'm going to be pretty bad at it. You have to explore a uh, like a frozen wilderness, similar to like what I imagine Alaska to be like or far north of Canada. There's no like monsters or anything beyond mother nature. So like wolves and the cold. And you have to survive out in the wild. Uh, it starts off, you're like a, you're a pilot. You have a plane that's like the sea duck from Tailspins, And it's a plane that can land on water. And it's a very small plane, but you run a like a transportation service. Or at least your dad did. And your character is kind of just an alcoholic. And your wife, she is your ex-wife. But both of you still where your writing rings and you still have feelings for each other. Okay. She comes to the transportation company to get transportation to some far northern area where there's no civilization for an emergency because she's a doctor. So you and your ex-wife board your plane and it crashes. And that's the beginning of the long dark. You are flung from your plane and you have not much. I, what I Actually, one of the interesting mechanics that is cool is that you're presented with loading the plane before you leave, right? So you're in your hangar and you have to put supplies into the plane and you're given a choice of bringing certain supplies based on the weight of the plane. So the plane could carry 15 kilograms and you could bring, there's a pistol that is, it's a distress pistol, so it's a flare gun. It's not like an actual pistol. You could bring a flare gun. You can bring a medical kit or you can bring like rations. If you brought all three, it would take up 15 kilograms. How convenient. However, you also have to bring your wife's backpack and her metal case, which is locked. You you can't get access to it. Which, inconveniently, weigh 10 kilograms together. So, really, you could only bring one item. You could bring the pistol, the med kit, or the food rations. And I decided to bring the pistol, of course. Because always, if you have the option to being able to shoot something, you should take that option in a video game. Not in real life. (laughs) Because it's like that parable. If you feed a man some fish, he eats for the day. But if you teach him to fish, he can feed himself forever kind of thing. So if you take food, you only have a limited amount of supply. But if you take a gun, you can make your own supply. It's a fun, it's kind of the cell shady ish for the cinematics and the characters um, okay. like a, I, would, I would say like a more of a not like an overly cel-shaded, but it's definitely got like that kind of like artistic direction to it. And uh, it's got a lot of crafting elements to it. And you have to like make sure you have the survival pieces to it. So like your health, your heat, you have to be warm, you have to get warm, you have to stay warm, you have to drink, you have to eat, you have to uh, have energy and, and certain actions take calories and you only have so many calories per day and then you have to rest so you have to manage those different um, kind of like metrics while you play through the game. It's been fun. I've played about three hours of it. And uh, it's been it's been pretty enjoyable. I swore I play it played it years ago. So I owned it and Steam didn't have any record of me playing it. So I don't know if I bought it because I watched somebody played and then I thought I played it. But it has uh, two different modes. It has a sandbox mode where you can just there's no story, you just go out and survive. And then it has a story mode. And I feel like the sandbox mode was first. Yes, it was. And I think that's what I remember either watching or playing. And then they introduced the story mode.
0: So I know I know for a fact the sandbox mode was first because on this podcast, a recently played of mine was The Long Dark, which I played around the time we started this podcast. Wow. And I played it. Because we had our Steam's linked and I downloaded it from your Steam.
1: Oh, nice.
0: I have the full retail copy now. I have it actually through Epic now, but the story mode came second. It was originally just the sandbox mode.
1: The story mode's pretty well done. It, the story's pretty well developed and uh, it's kind of cool. It came from a list of games that were like Firewatch. So the story mode definitely has like that kind of vibe. Yeah, um, depressing. It's definitely a lot more depressing, yes. It definitely has more survival elements than Firewatch. So I w- yeah. I wouldn't go in thinking it's like a walking simulator. You could just walk, but you'll die eventually. <laughs> That's right. There's also difficulty levels. So if you want to play more like easy, there's like you can scale it easier or harder or like extremely hard. And they change how easy it is to survive in the game. So wh- what about you? What have you been playing?
0: Seth, recently I've been playing a game called Sonic Classic 2, which is a fan game made by a developer called Hez, H-E-Z. This fan game was released in 2021 as part of the Sonic Amateur Game Expo, or SAGE, which is a yearly fan game expo that's hosted virtually where people that are fans of Sonic will create their own fan games. Uh, SAGE also is home to a lot of indie developers who create games that aren't Sonic. A lot of them have kind of a Sonic flair to them but uh there are some non-sonic games that get introduced at sage i actually really like sage in general i think it's a great opportunity to check out some of the really kind of indie developing scene out there Um, you know, people who are on single person teams or very, very small teams with zero budget. Sonic Classic 2 in particular is a game, as the name implies, based on Sonic. Uh, Specifically, it it takes a lot of elements from the Sega Genesis games and it kind of revamps them to a bit more of a modern standard, if you would. Kind of almost like what Mania does, but a little bit without the polish. That's one of the problems. And that's probably my primary complaint about Sonic Classic 2 is it's a fun game but there are just so many bugs it is brutal the developers are aware of the bugs they actually have an open google doc that you can go and just drop in your bugs whenever you encounter them uh and they do promise that there will be patches and other things released to kind of make the game run a little smoother so they are at least thoughtful in that regards and they take all the bugs seriously and they hope to address them i hope the game does introduce some elements that are unique to the fan game that i think um, are cool to have in sonic one being you can hide Hot swap out your shields, which is kind of a neat element. So in the Sonic games, you can collect elemental shields like the fire shield, the bubble shield, the electric shield. However, if you have the fire shield and you collect the electric shield, you will lose the fire shield. In Sonic Classic 2, if you have the fire shield and then you press a button, you can go to an empty slot, you can collect the electric shield, and then you'll have both the fire shield and the electric shield, and you can toggle between both of them. And one of the coolest things things is some of the shields will combine so like the fire shield will combine with the electric shield and that's pretty darn cool so then you get like a fire electric shield so whenever you jump it will like spray sparks of fire down on on people it's got some really cool elements but again the glitches are kind of a drawback to the game uh some glitches i encountered included getting stuck in places that didn't make sense to get stuck in uh the shields sometimes just didn't work i collected all the emeralds and beat the game and it told me try again next time and had an image of dr robotnik juggling the chaos emeralds and i was like that's not right because i collected them all overall minor glitches but when you add them all together it kind of can dampen the experience it just takes that nice polish that you get of of a game and starts kind of sanding it down a bit certainly if you're a fan of sonic give it a shot download it it is free so, uh, you know, can't go wrong with free. And again, the developer said they will address some of the glitches going forward. And who knows, Sage 2022 is around the corner. So hopefully we might see a even more updated version of the game with some of those concerns addressed.
1: Where can uh, somebody download it? You can get it from the Sage website,
0: which is uh, sageexpo.org, spelled S-A-G-E-X-P-O.org. Uh, you could also get it from the Sonic Fan Games HQ or SFGHQ, uh, and that is SonicFanGamesHQ.com, all one word. You can also probably just Google Sonic Classic to download and you'll find it. Nice. Well, today, today we're talking about something unique, because today we're talking about games, but not necessarily finished games, but not necessarily canceled games.
1: And not necessarily early access games.
0: (laughs) No, no. Today we're talking about the lovely
1: world of demo discs. That's right. Zach, what are your memories of for uh, demo discs?
0: Well, Seth, I have a very strong memory of one demo disc in particular. And up until pretty much today, I did not know the name of this demo disc. It was actually when we are coming up with the notes that I finally remembered what this demo disc was. Uh, Specifically, this was a PC Gamer demo disc. It was from the December 1999 PC Gamer. And it's the Demo Disc 2 from December of 1999. They had two discs for that particular issue. The PC Gamer December 1999 Demo Disc 2 had a ton of games. It had specifically like, like 14 or so games. And some of these games were games that I remember playing a ton of specifically i remember playing hype the time quest which we talked about in our um like fever dreams episode uh which was a game based on the playmobile figurines not lego playmobile which uh is kind of like i don't want to say lego knockoff because you can't really build anything with playmobile but it is kind of a lego knockoff
1: i mean like duplo adjacent
0: and hype the time quest is like a like a fantasy night game set in the playmobile world it's actually not a bad game it's kind of a weird game and then i remember also um, there was another game on there called star wars yoda's challenge which was a kind of like edutainment game where you had this like cartoon yoda who would give you different challenges um and it was set in like a phantom menace setting so it was on like nebu fighting battle droids uh but you fought battle droids by like doing rhythm games and then there was prince of persia 3d which was a 3D version of Prince of Persia that I remember Seth playing a lot. I remember in this demo specifically, I think it was this one section of the game where you had to go through part of the palace and there was this one hallway where spinning saws would come out and your guy's head would just like plop
1: off. Don't worry, people. There was no gore. Your head would just come off and it would just roll around. That would be it. It was a very early 3D polygonal game. And
0: then... Another great demo on this was Midtown Madness, which we talked a bit about in our racing episode. Midtown Madness, I think I put in so many hours into that game. I remember specifically with the demo, I think there were certain areas of the city that were like blocked off so you couldn't get to parts of Chicago, which was funny because Midtown Madness, the map is actually very small. So it was a very small chunk of the city that you couldn't go to. But we ended up getting a full retail copy of that. And then one of the other games I just remember playing a lot of was was Jane's USAF, which was a flight simulator where you played in a self fighter. I was very bad at Jane's USAF. I specifically remember crashing the plane every single time, but it was kind of cool to have a full 3D flight simulator game to play. That was like my experience with flight simulators back in the day was like that. And I think we had a Windows, uh, a Microsoft flight simulator. Uh, Those are at least my memories of demo discs. Seth, what about you?
1: Uh, so I also remember the uh, PC Gamer demo disc number two from 99 and uh, the games that Zach played and playing a lot of like Midtown Madness and all of that. I also remember that Microprose had editions of their games that they released called Player's Choice, which were second run editions of of their game. So they would have their game would come out and then maybe a year later they would re-release it, but they would call it player's choice and it would be in a, a purple box and it would have the image of the game surrounded by purple and it would say player's choice up at the top. It was kind of like a, I believe a discounting way of doing it. So I think what they did was they would release their game and then they would do player's choice and they would release it to be at a like a discounted price. However, this is how we got a lot of our Microprose games since our dad liked to go to Buckabook and Buckabook sold player's choice Microprose games. And we got like Field of Glory, Dragon Sphere, and Return of the Phantom. And I believe it was Dragon Sphere or Return of the Phantom that had demos included on the disc itself. And what you would do is before the main menu, you would be able to go to this demo section where they had a number of demos available for you to play that were other Microprose properties uh, such as the Transport Tycoon Deluxe or TTD they had XCOM they had Sid Meier's Pirates they had Space Kids and this is how we experience these Microprose games through these demo discs so it's why I'm familiar with their like stealth bomber game of F11 a or how Zach's familiar with Space Kids yeah, or yeah. how I was got interested in XCOM and then because of playing the demos so much on the demo portion of the game, my parents ended up getting me XCOM. So I was able to play XCOM. Though I don't know if XCOM had it built in. It was very like unique circumstances and only certain releases that had these demos built in. So they weren't truly dedicated demo discs, but they were like demo discs in spirit, as it were. And of course, I had a friend who was uh, a subscriber to PC Gamer. uh, So, They would regularly go through demo discs as well, and I would be able to get a copy and play some of them. It was fun because you you would sometimes get to play some early games that had a lot of hype attached to them, and then they would end up being really bad when they finally release. Or maybe just games that would be beyond their time. Like, I remember we played this game, I think it was called Savage Frontier or something like that. It was an RTS MMO and a third-person action game, all shoved into one. So you would have... one. One person being the base commander and then other people being like the army of that base commander. And you would go through and attack each other. And I'm pretty positive that was a demo disc that me and my friend were like, this is going to be great. And then it wasn't. But that was a sometimes a common occurrence with some of the demo discs. They really hyped it up. I mean, they are marketing vehicles. So like the objective of demo discs is to entice you to buy it. Zach mentioned in an earlier episode about how he likes to see games played by streamers versus played by the developers because it's going to be footage that is going to be more realistic picture of the game versus... What the developers may put out because the developers know what to show you because they're wanting to sell the game, and I feel like demo discs are kind of like the demo's only going to be the best stuff that needs to be shown. And game demos themselves have been around for a long time in the gaming world, even to just when they were in arcades. Uh, in the early days of arcades, machines would often have attract modes, which were used to demonstrate the gameplay of the game itself. These served as a way for players to get. An idea of how the game may play before they drop a quarter in and it could also be just where the game would kind of play itself as like almost like a screensaver yeah, and yeah. you could look over and you could see the game being played and it kind of served because many of the early arcades were CRTs. They would have like ghosting and stuff like that that would occur. So it simultaneously acted as a screensaver and it showed off the game. I actually, my uh, retro handheld does the, uh, if I leave it idle long enough, it does a demo of like one of the games. Well, that's fun. I like that. And if you engage, like if you push start or like select during that time, you can actually... You you go right into that particular game that it's demoing.
0: Oh, that's fun. That's fun.
1: But when like real true demos really got their start was in the home computer market. While consoles and arcades dominated a majority of the gaming world, the home computer market was rapidly gaining traction in the 1980s. A lot of games, especially in the 1980s, were distributed on cassette tapes. Tapes, unlike floppy disks, took longer to load but also could often hold more data overall, which meant you could store multiple games on one tape, depending on the actual length of the physical tape.
0: Yes, yeah. And and the reason tapes would take a while to load is because, as Seth noted, it had to do with the physical length of the tape. So, like, let's say you have a program and it takes up, I don't know, about two minutes worth of tape. It's going to take two minutes to at least load that game into the computer properly. And then it might have to do a minute or so of just running the code to get it to work.
1: And tapes and cassette tapes being used as a storage medium, even in the 80s, is, is kind of fascinating to think about that they were also a micro of... Like the real to real storages that were previously used. And it's actually part of, if you play a lot of Fallout, Fallout goes down a macro world where we in the real world went down a a micro world. So in real life, we took like real to real tapes. And we made them smaller and we made them cassette tapes. And then we made those even smaller and we uh, iterated on the technology and we made computers smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Till now, pretty much everyone in the world has one in their pocket at all times, which is your phone. However, in Fallout, uh, instead of microing everything in the 50s, they macroed everything in the 50s. So that's why, like, if you see, like, President Eden, he's like just a big reel to reel tape computer. Yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. only, like, terminals, and they're all running on, like, mainframes somewhere in the Fallout world. So Fallout is the type of aesthetic that is, like, A macro future versus in real life we went micro. Cassette tapes were kind of the final iteration of microing reel-to-reel because that's the reel-to-reel technology being a micro because then we would move into floppy disks where we would kind of go into optical reading and being able to use a laser to read optical things. Yeah. To kind of go back to where we were, one of the more common machines that was being used during this time In England was the ZX Spectrum, which was an 8-bit computer. The Spectrum, which was created by Sinclair Research and was introduced to the market in 1982 and was sold for the low, low price of £125, or today to be equivalent of £470, which equates to 628 USD. That was for their 16-kilobyte version. They also had a 48-kilobyte version that they sold for a little bit more for £175, which equates to 879 USD. This was cheap for the time, for especially for a computer, and this helped ZX Spectrum really carve out a market for being in everyone's house. As the Spectrum was a very popular computer, there was a lot of public interest in upcoming software because even if you didn't spend a lot of money, you still spent a decent amount of money. You want to use it because... Uh, beyond the basic capabilities of the ZX Spectrum, uh, especially for uh, a more layman user of the pro- of the computer, uh, you would want software to go with it because the software would be pre-programmed programs, so you wouldn't have to figure out how to make a, uh, a an accounting program yourself. Yeah, you could right. just take it and plug in a cassette tape with an accounting program on it. So there was a lot of interest in having more software released for the spectrum. And during this time, many different magazines kind of came about to promote various games and software. And often these magazines would have a focus on certain distributors over other distributors. So the magazine would kind of be like the marketing end of a distributor. And they would say like, hey, you know, if you go with these guys, these are the things that we have available. And one of the ways that the magazines were able to help promote these games was through the use of cover tapes.
0: Before we describe what a cover tape is, in England, there were really three major names in the spectrum-oriented magazines that come into play during this time. Sinclair User, Your Sinclair, and Crash. Each magazine had a really different style of art that they would use. They had different style of writing for their articles, and they would also spotlight different games and software. For example, in terms of the different writing, Your Sinclair has been remembered by some individuals in that time period as being more humor-oriented, whereas Sinclair User was a bit more serious a cover tape as the name implies were cassette tapes that were often and quite literally strapped to the cover of the magazine so you'd get your magazine and right in the corner would be a cassette tape taped with cellophane tape to the cover one of the earliest magazines to do this in england was your sinclair and they released a cover tape on their january 1986 issue that included a demo of the game rasputin by firebird your sinclair was not the first magazine to do cover tapes the first magazine was a a magazine over in spain called micro hobby however the demo scene that was introduced by your sinclair kind of became the center point in uk magazines now unlike the future that would become demo discs cover tapes were not exclusively demos Uh, for example the may 1987 issue of your sinclair featured a 100 percent complete version of the game road race by ocean software road race is not a good game apparently but it was a free game which is important to remember when it comes to cover tapes one of the reasons that they did well was because you were only paying for the cost of the magazine so a magazine might cost let's say for example a pound 25. Probably about as much as you would pay to buy something from the shop in a a normal situation. This would be so much less than paying for an actual game in market. You were really only paying for the magazine's cover price, and you're getting a whole game, or sometimes multiple games,
1: essentially free. And if your family didn't have a lot of means, then those games got played, and probably played a lot.
0: Oh yeah. The thing with this was that it wasn't just a good selling point for these developers it was a good selling point for these magazines so much so that this time period is sometimes called the cover tape wars because various magazines attempted to fight for supremacy in the market and they did this by releasing more complex cover tape compilations in each magazine release so uh they would have you know cover tapes that featured maybe 10 games on both sides or maybe one full game and five demos Uh, it it completely varied demos and magazine exclusives were were often heavily advertised on the covers. So you would have like small advertisements for the actual stories, but the big advertisements on the covers were for what was on the tape that you were getting. And it was the selling element for these magazines. Your Sinclair actually released a game called Blind Panic in one of their cover tapes, which was exclusive to the magazine, meaning the only way you could get it was buying the magazine itself. And Your Sinclair wasn't developing these games. These were developers who were going to Your Sinclair and saying, hey, I have a Game, I will give it to you for your cover tapes if you give us a cut of your profits. And your Sinclair would be like, yeah, whatever. You're giving software. Let's throw it onto a tape. Now, by the 1990s, the world of computing was really beginning to shift. Uh, The ZX, the I'd use the British term. (laughs) The ZX Spectrum was becoming obsolete because IBM compatibles and computers like the Amiga were starting to become more affordable and faster. Games were also getting much more complex and often would no longer be able to fit on cassettes, or it would just take way too long to load a game if it was that big.
1: Right, because it was physically going along the path there.
0: Exactly. As machines began to get faster, and more complex, so did the hardware used to store data, and thus introduce the three and a half inch floppy disk standard. Uh, what ended up happening was cover tape stopped being a thing, and cover disks started being a thing, but disks spelled with a K for floppy disk. Companies like Apogee um, were actually really big into using cover disk Floppy disks to publish their titles as shareware, and they would distribute these games via the three and a half inch floppy disks and strap them onto covers of gaming magazines. Um, some two notable gaming magazines at the time were Amiga Format in ST format, which was for the Atari ST. Uh, These would include their 3.5-inch floppy disks as their cover-mounted software. And these disks were always loaded with various demos and other types of shareware or freeware.
1: Now, shareware games are very similar to demos, featuring uh, a segment of the complete game, but obviously making it so that you would want to buy it to play more of it. Uh, most shareware games would end up displaying the contact information of the developer so that a full retail copy could be ordered. This was a uh, the primary distribution for titles such as Wolfenstein 3D and Doom. Shareware, however, was different from a demo in a few ways. Shareware titles would usually be able to be upgraded to the full, wa- the full version and thus retain any save data. Demos were usually fully independent programs that could not be upgraded. So like a shareware version really had the full game almost locked away from you. Yeah. Built into it or maybe required just a little bit more to unlock it where demos were built solely to be a demo. By the late 1990s, the floppy disk was now becoming the obsolete format versus the cassette tape and the CD was beginning to take its place. The 1990s was also when home video game consoles had shifted to the CD format. While cover tapes and demo floppy disks were all the rage on home computers, it was a bit more difficult to make a cartridge for a game console. As a result, cartridge-based game systems really didn't get the same treatment, so you didn't really get any sort of like demo cartridge for the NES or right, the Sega yeah. Genesis or, or the SNES. You didn't really get those because it's not really a great format to distribute <laughs> through right. a magazine. Nor also would it be cost prohibitive, right? Making a, a floppy disk or a CD is is ultimately pretty cheap. And the one thing magazines wanted to do was be cheap with their free stuff that they were giving away now however in the late 1990s the sega saturn and the sony playstation came out uh and that meant magazines could now distribute demos for those consoles since they were they were able to take cds the saturn ended up having a few demo discs that were re- released in the various sega themed magazines as appropriately (laughs) however the saturn ultimately wouldn't have the staying power to be around for that long however the playstation which was much more popular had a longer time to establish itself in the market thus there were a lot of playstation demo discs that would would be out in the market today
0: and and playstation demo discs are uh total trip
1: there were various
0: lines of them produced because pretty much each magazine that came bundled with a playstation demo disc did theirs differently from the other magazine so you would have like the sony demo discs that were produced via their magazines which were different than like the european demo discs that were produced through the european exclusive magazines so each one just looks incredibly different and you load them up and it looks like you're in like a 90s heaven of like flashy colors and loud music and stuff.
1: I just want to interject real quick here. I think it's important to note that up until even I want to say the early 2000s, even to even a little bit today, most game companies had their own magazines. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sega, Nintendo, PlayStation, they all had their own dedicated magazines on top of dedicated magazines for There was PC Gamer, which was dedicated to PC gaming. There was EGM, which is uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly, which was just a broad spectrum. There was Nintendo Power. There was whatever Sega's thing was called, but it was there. And it was because there was no Steam, there was no Epic, there was no Microsoft Store, there was no digital platform for them to release games on. And there wasn't really that great of a internet news source. Because without right, these digital yeah. platforms, you weren't really getting your news from like a dead. You weren't going to like every single developer's website to see what they're doing at the time, to like be like, oh, when's their next game coming out? These trade publications were really the only only way that they could get in front of gamers because they would be sold in stores and comic shops and all sorts of different locations where their audience would go to and they would say, look at the... I feel like they were not only were the demo discs themselves a trip, but I feel like the magazine covers were always going for like the most like grab your attention type of cover that is like really if you look at them, you're like, wow, that's that game's awesome awesome and you bring it back and you're like mm, no even back then
0: like they did everything to sell these magazines and make them like eye-catching I, I think there was like I don't know if it was EGM there was some magazine that I think ran a like Tomb Raider cover where it was like Lara Croft in a bikini sort of thing like right oh yeah like, I'm sure yeah like they, they, they did everything it was literally like they needed to sell they sold the, the way they sold and they had to compete because let's say you are Someone who hasn't yet bought the video game console. The only way you would find out about the game consoles, apart from maybe potentially seeing an ad, which I don't know how frequent like television ads were for these game consoles, you would have to pick up a magazine because there wasn't like the World Wide Web. You wouldn't be going to review sites. You would go to the store and like let's say potentially you're a parent who's looking to get a game for their for their child, and you would see things like PlayStation Underground or you would see uh, Nintendo Power, and you could see the covers and. You could pick them up and you can flip through them. And that would automatically give you an idea of what the company is looking to sell. And yeah, that was how people did it.
1: And I I think you make a a pretty good point, though, with television ads and like radio spots and stuff like that. I, I think in history there were television ads. But television ads in video gaming, especially back in the 90s and even early 2000s, were predominantly around the console itself. Yes. So it would be like a Nintendo commercial. And they're trying to sell you the console. They're not trying to sell you a game. And especially for third-party developed games, they wouldn't necessarily have the budget. Even EA, early Activision... Like even micro pros, like these guys didn't have in the early days the budget to buy television spots. Right. Like yeah. but what they could afford is a full page in a magazine. And they could afford a demo disc. And they could get their game into gamers' hands without necessarily having to have a Call of Duty Super Bowl ad. <laughs> right, yeah. The demo discs that you were seeing from some of these
0: magazines were often filled with like colorful menus, f MV animations. That those were the kind of the ones that you might see in Europe. In America, you, you would often get some that are kind of wild looking. With like, uh, I saw one that was like the entire demo disc was made to look like you were sitting in a drive-in theater with like the game title displayed on the on the big screen sort of thing. One of the more famous demo discs that was out was PlayStation Underground, which was through a magazine of the same name. So you would get the magazine, the PlayStation Underground magazine, and it would come with the PlayStation. Underground demo disc. This was actually a magazine run by Sony. So, as we were talking about, all these companies had their own in house magazines. And this magazine would come bundled with demo discs that were full of not only demos, but also trailers, behind the scene featurettes, cheat codes that you could use for your games, and even some celebrity cameos. Like, I saw one on an article that I was reading on Kotaku where it was Frankie Muniz hanging out with like a virtual avatar and they were interviewing him so that was like the thing you would get on these demo discs on the the ones through playstation underground playstation underground was also kind of unique because not only would it bundle these demos and trailers but it would also include some indie games created through the net your development kit which was the development kit for the playstation these were titles that were often produced by small small indie developers sometimes like one or two people and their inclusion on these demo discs was often the only only way for these developers to ever see their games running on official hardware which i think was something that sony did not have to do but i think it was really commendable for them to do it i mean arguably they were trying to pad their demo discs right like they they wanted to have more content but the fact that they did so by getting indie developers and getting their games and putting them on the demo disc. I think that was kind of neat. I think it would have been really cool to be an indie developer who, you know, came up with a game all all by yourself and have Sony be like, we're going to put it on the demo disc. I don't know if they even paid these people, but like, it was still kind of cool. The PlayStation Underground demo discs were actually popular enough that there was a line of demo discs called Jam Packs, which you could buy at retail for $5. So, like, not only were they giving these away for free, people were
1: buying them. (laughs) Even today. So like Steam just wrapped up with its Next Fest and they had, you know, whatever hundreds of demos available of games and they do these these Next Fest type of events pretty regularly where they have like a week where every developer tries to get a who's in development tries to get some sort of demo available of their game out. And I went through personally, I think I downloaded like seven demos or 10 demos and I, I just want to like, I, I have like, I may have like even just like a passing interest in what the game is and I'm like, whatever, I'll download a demo. And I think that type of like attitude, like quantity of demos was something that even even back in the demo disk days if you saw a demo disc that had 15 demos or a demo disc that had like 25 demos you're probably going for the 25 demo disc versus the uh, the 15
0: going into the future a bit the playstation 2 and xbox would also feature demo discs some of these would be distributed via magazines or sometimes you could get them via stores there were also demo discs that were not distributed to people these were ones that would be exclusive for store kiosks for the game systems so like you go into a kb toys or a best buy and they would have a playstation 2 behind a like plastic box with the controller sticking out. And there would be a demo disc inside of that PlayStation 2 that had a bunch of games on it. And those would be exclusive to the store. So you wouldn't be able to like pick up that demo disc. I think it's also important that we mention that there are two types of demos that you would frequently see on these demo discs, playable and non-playable.
1: Now, a playable demo is exactly what it sounds like. It's a stripped down version of the full game. This could be something like the demo for Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker, which consists of a time segment of the game, or it could be something like Half-Life Uplink, which is a self-contained game with a different story that just introduces the player to the world of the game and the controls. Non-playable demos are often recordings of a game or video of a game made within the game's game's engine. Uh, These are often what you see when you uh, go to an event like E3 or PAX, uh, though you may also see them as just displays at retailers, um, such as in a kiosk. And it's just like, it's almost like a tech demo where it's just showing off like what they can do with the game. And it's a demonstration of the game, but it's not anything that you could play around with since it's coded to be like a movie. Now, back in the world of PC gaming, demo discs on CD were distributed via magazines like PC Gamer and often came bundled with a variety of PC game demos. Demos would also often come with releases from various publishers like the Microprose demos that we talked about In my memories they that were available uh, and Humongous would often put demos of their games on their releases. So you could get your demos through a third party or first party like PC Gamer or you could just get them bundled in with the game. Yeah, I would say
0: uh, what you would often see though is like PC Gamer might have a bunch of games from different developers. So you might have like an EA game or an Angel Software game like Midtown Madness or a LucasArts game. Whereas on the Humongous Game demo, it's only going to be Humongous. <laughs> games. Yeah, on You're-
1: Humongous Game demos, you may own Putt-Putt, but you will also have a demo for Spy Fox, Freddy Fish, and pajama sam yeah and they would all be timed demos i think that was the way that we played spy fox that was
0: the way i played Freddy fish and spy fox yeah
1: (laughs) yeah was was through primarily through demos which were uh short little snippets of those games whereas Microprose also had those timed versions of the games as well um and as as i mentioned earlier how i ended up really discovering xcom as a game i was like wow this xcom game exists and is a thing and i love killing aliens. Now, as the internet sped up and time moved on, demo disks ultimately really just stopped being a thing. For one thing, software developers became more concerned that their products were becoming devalued by their release through this method. And also, it's just quicker to distribute d- demos through the internet. And ultimately, there's not a lot of video game print that's still around. Many magazines have converted to an electronic format, so you could still read... PC Gamer is still published, though it's published electronically. I believe they may still release keys to access demos... Yeah. uh, ...through their their subscription, and I I was subscribed to PC Gamer for a long, long, long time. Sometimes I actually think about resubscribing to PC Gamer, um, mostly because I like reading reviews of games and like getting takes on games, and kind of discovering games through the review process. It's so it's difficult to explain this process, right? So, I could go to Steam and I could find games to play based on the description that the people who are trying to sell me the game wrote or I could like Google the games and see how people are thinking about Or I could just buy whatever's hyped out, right? It's just like, whatever, just buy Elden Ring or buy whatever game is top trending and kind of roll through these AAA titles. However, there's something to be said about reading a subscription like PC Gamer where you're paying for the service, so there's no, there's not a lot of like pop-up ads, or we're not being besieged by ads. But you could read through curated reviews of the games that are currently in the market. They'll say like, hey, this game's like an 80 or a, a 70, and here's why. You know, like if you like this, you like this. Ask me. Here's some screenshots. Boom, boom, boom. And it's a little bit more of a unbiased approach than trolling through the storefronts and like looking at whatever shopkeep is like holding up their. Best image of their game. Um, Because all those, like the Steam descriptions and the Steam screenshots and all that stuff, is really dedicated around showing you the best picture of the game. And there's been plenty of times, I would even say 60% of the time, I have seen a game and been like, this looks fun. Screenshots look great. The description on Steam looks great. There's a demo available. I will download this demo. And I boot it up, I'm like, this is garbage. i'm like this is just like something's wrong and i won't pick on any game in particular because i I don't like to do that i don't like to push that down on people but if i read a review somebody might have just told me it was garbage and now you could also say you know seth you could just read the reviews from steam but that's like looking into a crowd to see how many people are holding a thumbs up and thumbs down you're not reading like a professional game reviewers right idea. yeah um so there's also resources though, if you if you're interested in learning more about games and you don't want to necessarily subscribe to a magazine, uh you can there's a, a website that I'm a fan of called Adventure Gamers. AdventureGamers.com. And they are a website that I've frequented for the, I don't know I want to say the past 15 years or so and they do solid reviews on gaming they do have a decent number of ads on their website so there is so if you're affronted by ads I'm I would just say that just watch out there's going to be a bunch there to help manage the cost of running their website but uh they do have some really really good reviews and they, they do really good s- starring system on on only adventure games so if you're interested in the adventure game niche like that genre uh, adventuregamers.com i'm sure there's other websites that that are that are out there for other niches such as maybe i don't know first person shooters or what have you but uh definitely found that website to be helpful in lieu of demos as it were because i think at the end of the day a demo and a review is all trying to just help you make a decision on whether or not you want to buy a game and uh yeah so there's those things as well that'll do it that will do it that's gonna be our uh, surprisingly filled episode of demo discs personally i i didn't know if we were going to be able to get even to the right runtime about demo discs but uh i knew knew, we have it i
0: knew you doubted it but
1: I do. I do doubt most things that you do.
0: Yeah, I know. Seth, speaking of doubting me, uh, are you ready to hear about the game that I have picked for your byway pass?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm excited. Let me. Uh, let me start listening here.
0: This game takes place after a catastrophe. Basically, something has happened to this world that you live on, and it's not the same as it once was. In the game, you have to find means to make your family whole again it's a sci-fi game and it's it's grounded in the intimate repercussions of large-scale conflict is an adventure game
1: oh i love adventure games and
0: it's called somerville i think i'm
1: familiar with it
0: somerville is being developed by Jumpship, and it's due for release this year and we will be right back as seth looks up somerville
1: So we're back. Yeah, so Somerville, S O M E R V I L L E, which is due out later this year, as Zach mentioned, this year being 2022, is a very neat-looking game. It was actually, it kind of reminds me of uh the, like, limbo and kind of perspective, at least. So, like, the person you're playing it's a it's a third person perspective so you're not viewing the world game world through this person's eyes but you're even pulled back further away so it's like a wide angle wide angle shot of the uh the play field so the person's small but not like small compared to everything else they're normal size compared to everything else and uh you're like bringing your family through all these cool different little uh, backgrounds from what i'm seeing you're and you're bringing your family through all these cool different backgrounds i think i would gonna put it down as a buy whoa yeah i haven't gotten a buy uh, out it of it you in a cool. while i know you haven't mostly because i'm hard to please are you ready for your game I am. So you end up becoming indebted to somebody right from the beginning of this game. And you do not like this person that you're indebted to. But since you're indebted to them, you have to kind of do what they say. So you end up having to be involved in this person's ideas and their schemes. And all you're trying to do is just... Kind of get back to your life, but you have to help this person out, and you also have to like work to pay the bills, and you just you really have to kind of uh, help this person out while trying to manage your life. Okay, what is this game? Beholder Three by Paint Bucket Games, being published by Owlware Premium.
0: And we're back so uh, beholder 3 is uh, I think as Seth mentioned uh, being developed by paint bucket games published by Ellaware premium um, it's actually due out as of the recording of this episode tomorrow but as of the release of this episode it's already out it came out on March 3rd and it looks it looks really neat I actually like the idea of this kind of almost like espionage point-and-click adventure strategy game that it's it's it it has going with it there's looks like there's going to be like political intrigue and conspiracy and just stuff that you have to deal with in that regard however i haven't played any of the other beholder games so before i say bye on this i want to play the other beholder games first um and it is a trilogy and i feel like uh sometimes i'm like seth where i want to play the older games in the series before i play the newest game in the series I've only made a few exceptions to this rule, but I don't want to do it with this game. So (laughs) I'm going to put this down as a weight so I can... um Maybe take some time to play the earlier Beholder games, uh, Beholder 1 and Beholder 2. And then if I like those games, I will pick up Beholder 3. So if you are a fan of this podcast and you want to um, reach out to us and let you know what you thought of this episode, or if you want to reach out to us and tell us um, how you have a great idea for the next episode, you can do that by emailing classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us via our website classicgamingbrothers.com you can also reach out to us via our social media facebook instagram twitch twitter facebook instagram and twitch are all classic gaming brothers twitter is CG Brothers pod be sure to reach out to us via those if you have any questions comments or concerns you can also of course follow us on our social media in order to get most up-to-date information and to hear when the next episode of classic gaming brothers has been released if you do like this podcast you can always give us a review or a rating on any of the various podcasting applications that are available so like ring bells do all those things let people know that you like this podcast and that you like the classic gaming brothers and our content that's all that i have uh am i forgetting anything
1: don't play games like my brother
0: and don't play games like my brother
1: i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's
0: right that's right that's right right.